perhaps I should just begin and others can join us as they, as they arrive. Um, welcome. Some of you have stayed from the tour. Thank you for sticking around. Um, we had a beautiful tour of the garden this morning. Um, this, these garden beds here, which um, hold a number of species that, uh, species of plants that Kate Wall and I have over the past few months since November um, been planting and tending to a little bit, not too much. <laughs> um, to begin, I would first like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we meet um, and pay my respects to the elders past, present and future and to also honour the keepers of plant wisdom that uh, are all over the world. Um, and I would also just like to acknowledge specifically um, for this project, um, the Quechua people of Peru, um, that's an Andean, uh, from, from the Andean region of Peru, uh, and in particular, Leticia Gueva, who shared, we had a really beautiful conversation where I was very lucky to speak to her over Zoom, um, and she lives in the Andean valleys of Peru. And she shared a lot of stories about this plant that's behind us, which is achira. Um, achira is a Quechua word for the plant. Uh, another word that she shared for the plant is pampachi, which means um, it means reproducing from the ground. Um, and she shared a lot of other beautiful information which might arise through this conversation, but. There's so many things to talk about in this conversation. If you're interested to learn specifically about the plants um, in this garden, we might touch on some of them, but we will be holding another tour in, on the 27th. Um, so if you miss today's, that will be happening again. Um, and I guess to begin, I would like to introduce you, or introduce myself first, um, I'm Caitlin Fransman. Uh, I'm the artist uh, involved in the exhibition in the gallery, um, the two front galleries here, uh, called To the Curve of You, and involving these garden beds. Uh, to the Curve of You is a project co-commissioned by Tarawara Biennale, um, which the conversation for that started several years, several years, Two, almost two years ago, actually, um, but it was put on hold because of um, 2020 and all that was. Um, so I've been thinking about these topics for a couple of years now, um, but more closely since I've moved out to Upper Brookfield um, on the outskirts of Brisbane, uh, where the topic of weeds is constant between <laughs> the locals uh, and it's very visible, it's very present. Um, uh, you can really, I can't sort of drive through now and not see the impact of um, colonialism on this land and but I'm so curious about all the species that all, all the plant life and life that is existing in the different zones. Um, and one thing that uh, also is 
something that really was noticeable to me in Upper Brookfield was the different zones where people are really tending to land. Um, like there's one, you walk along the road, there's just weeds, 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 and it's quite hot on the road. And then you walk through and there's this zone that a couple have been looking after for 12 years and it's just so cool. You can hear the insects like so vibrant. And so it's interesting um, zones, change of zones. But let me introduce to you the two speakers that we have here today. So Kate Wool, I've been working with, as I mentioned, with this garden. She's been an incredible uh, advisor, <laughs> constantly there when I'm texting messages going, I don't know what's going to happen with this plant. What do I do? Um, and Kate uh, is a professional gardener, um, advising mostly in um, people's home gardens, if that's correct. Um, but a, a history of working within um, the environmental field. And I'll let Kate share more about that just to give you a bit of background. Um, but Kate has also written a wonderful book called Working With Weeds, which is available in the store. And we'll talk a little bit about that. It'll probably come up in the conversation too. Um, and to my left, I have Renee Rossini. Is that how you pronounce your last name, Rossini? Um, and Renee, uh, is an ecologist, environmental ecologist, <laughs> just ecologist. Um, and I've, we've ha had an interesting kind of engagement in that several of our mutual friends have said, you must meet Renee, you've got to meet Renee. Um, we share, share a lot of um, similar interests. And we finally met through this project, um, which was really great to have that opportunity. Uh, and I went to visit Renee up on Mount Nebo, um, checking, we've had a nice chat in your garden. Um, but Renee is working for the Queensland Trust for Nature currently, um, but many other uh, interests and constantly out exploring um, in different ecosystems. So to begin with, I'll just um, start with Kate, maybe you could just add a little bit to, to your background to just give a bit of context um, and your interest and maybe the question what is a weed to you? <laughs> <laughs> what a big question. Um, sorry I got a lead underneath yeah. your legs there, sorry about that. Um, I'm Kate Wall, I'm a consulting gardener based here in Brisbane. Um, so yes most of my work is based around garden situations um, and the home gardener in particular um, which is a really fascinating field in that I have been a passionate gardener my entire life. So um, it's um, since I was tiny, so I love working in gardens, I love plants. But it's really fascinating to me then that as gardeners, we love plants, but there's this whole group of plants that we absolutely, utterly hate, and they're the weeds. And so people get so passionate in such a positive way about their gardens, and then suddenly the conversation turns to weeds and these all these positive, wonderful thoughts turn incredibly negative. And um, so I have on my journey um, with gardening, a big part of what I'm passionate about is gardening in our own climate and understanding where we are on this earth. We are not in Melbourne, we are not in Sydney, we are not in Europe. We're here in Brisbane and Brisbane is different. And over the years I have worked, um, I'm also, um, a member, well, 
president of the Queensland Herb Society, vice president of the Horticultural Media Association. And I've done a lot of different work over the time. But one, you know, I have done a lot of work in horticultural media where you're writing and things like that. For people who are based elsewhere, and the climate is different and what happens is different. And so I have had a lot of people say to me, but, you know, no, this, tell them to do, do it like this is how it is. Well, that's not how it is in Brisbane. It's, um, so I'm very, very passionate about giving Brisbane gardeners information that's relevant to Brisbane. Um, that's, that's my first passion. My second passion is creating um, gardens which connect to the world around us, that we don't live in isolation. We live as part of the greater world and that, that nature doesn't understand um, a survey peg and the bees and the butterflies, the birds, don't understand that this line is the, the line in the sand that you must not cross. So what we do in our gardens impacts very much on the world around us. And that connectedness is very important to me. I do also have a background in ecology and um, studied environmental biology at university a very, very long time ago. Um, but of course, I also love the idea of plants that have value to us and the history of human use of plants um, I love eating out of my garden. I love my garden being the first place I go for medical support, um, you know, to support my health and the health of my family. I think that's all very important. And it, along that journey became that time when we started to talk about um, glyphosate being a problem chemical instead of being the be-all and end-all. And at that point, the work I was doing, I was using quite a lot of it. So the idea of not using it at all was a bit like, oh, really? Um, so I began looking at things differently. And many years later, and it surprises me how many years have passed, and we still haven't banned glyphosate. We're still asking these questions that there's been so much research done on. The, question, the answers are there, but we're still asking the question because we don't want to know the answer. Um, and that is where my work with weeds came from, that there was always a certain group of weeds, things like chickweed that I'd grown up eating. And so in my mind, it wasn't a weed, it was a valuable plant. So I, I have found myself at odds with the greater gardening community in that sense of what is a valuable plant and what is not. Um, so. I then spent quite a long time researching, um, investigating, putting things into practice and um, and that's where this book has come from. Um, I'm glad somebody's got the book. Um, the journey with that has been about, well, if we're not going to approach gardening by walking out there with our bottle of weed killer, what are we going to do instead? Um, and the journey has been that, well, maybe we don't want to kill some of these plants after all and that maybe they have an important role. And that's the journey that I've been on, is educating people to question what is and isn't a weed. And um, my answer to that is not a straightforward answer. It is about time and place. It is not about a plant ever being good or bad. But it's about time and place. And in this situation, is this plant good or bad? So it's a question that we ask based on our situation, not a label we give a plant is the answer to whether or not something's a plant. And therefore, every single one of us is going to have a different answer because we all are looking at a situation differently. And that, that's actually a good thing.
Thank you. And I think um, what I love about both of your work is that you are both working in the realms of education um, in different ways, but also um, very embedded in that systems thinking. Um, and so, Renee, maybe you could tell us a bit about your work and it within that education realm, but also conservation. Yeah, and the tricky question of what is a weed? And what is a weed? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I guess my journey um, as an ecologist is um, I'm kind of a re an early career ecologist. I did most of my studies in the beginning um, in marine space, and then I've moved into a more terrestrial space now, but I guess at the end of the day, ecology is just about studying everything at once and how things interact. So the best thing about it is your mobile, like the anywhere can be the system you work. Um, I kind of mostly specialize, I guess, um, across different spaces too, which I guess is really fun for plants and for weeds, because it is that space and, and time aspect is so important. Um, so I do a lot of work um, out in Western Queensland in um, Inagai country and then a lot of work on, in coastal places in Queensland as well, either by myself or through um, the Queensland Trust for Nature. Um, yeah, and I guess that kind of comes back to in both of those spaces, that's where my context for what is a weed comes from. And I think I completely agree. There's no, you think that there is this it's like moral questions that there is right and wrong or there is good plants and bad plants when it is really, it's, and it's kind of what I love about it, it's about each plant in its place, in its time and with its story. Like what, how did that plant get here and how did its value change? Like a lot of those plants and the plants we continue to see causing ecological problems or being labelled as um, problematic weeds were bought here because of a value, like chickweed because it was edible, grows fast, had some medicinal properties. Um, Lantana camara, one that everybody knows, ornamental, grows fast in a garden, looks nice as a hedge. Like those, those are values that, that like colonial Australia brought those plants here. Um, but our values change when we see that they have impacts on the flora and fauna that um, you've introduced them to and the places that you've brought them to that they didn't have a history with. Um, so I guess, yeah, for me, a lot of the time, it's kind of a multiple approach, but I always come back to, like, what is the narrative of, of that organism and its place? Like, and so many plants, and I guess this is where I liked both of your perspectives, and when we've talked, like, yes, a weed is in a place that it didn't have an evolutionary connection with, or it doesn't have a human connection with either, because it's knowledges of uses and it's knowledges of values with the indigenous people that have lived with that plant might not have come with it when it got transferred, especially with like plants that were bought with colonialism. Um, so I guess I mostly think of weeds and the ones that I think of as problematic is when they start interfering with the narratives of the plants that are here. Like, because there's so many plants here that have uses that go beyond not just the human use too. There's the stories they tell us, for example, things about fire in Australia, like plants tell you so much here about fire and about the human connection and how plants and humans evolved on the continent with fire. Um, and then their connections to other species, like lots of plants that are threatened by plants that were bought here are host plants for butterflies. Like we've talked about Richmond Birdwing, 
um, also grass brown butterflies. Um, and it's, yeah, when I think that those narratives might stop being strong because of a plant that didn't form its narrative here when I start thinking, okay, do we need to think about that plant and what we might want to do with it? Do we want to manage or manipulate the system or are we happy to leave the system? And I think, again, that's something, a conversation we had is like, and your book definitely touches on is, what about foraging? Like revaluing a weed and seeing it as useful, particularly in a lived, like a intensely lived landscape. Like if everybody on their walk, we were talking about everybody on their walk home collected dandelion greens off their streets, like that's weed control without glyphosate. Like that would actually, if you relearn your value and then harvest, those weeds have got a value back plus it's a management and control technique, yeah. But then there must also be um, education required around that because like with that, as some of you who were um, on the tour saw like I was walking past the flea bane and it all just attached to my clothes and so then I'm a carrier of those seeds. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about responsibility and um, and having the correct, like how do, how do you educate in terms of um, say for example dandelion, we could be picking um, the leaves but that root is such a deep tap root and it will be there forever unless you um, pull that out and is that a bad thing? Um, maybe this, I think this is an interesting question, this is one that I've, um, it comes up for me a lot because a lot of people come to me and say why have I got a weed and even what you're talking about, about where the weed has come from, why is it there? I think in a lot of cases we're actually asking the wrong questions. It's the weeds are there. You know, you may not have brushed past the flea bane, but the wind will blow those seeds. Those seeds are in the environment and will be spreading anyway. Um, so in a sense, the weeds ability to spread is already released on the world. Whether we pick a little bit and take it around or not, it's, it's there. So in that sense, we're contributing only a small amount to the spread of the weed. Obviously, it's a different story if we're digging up mother-in-law's tongue and dumping it in the bushland. That's, we're not talking about that sort of scale. And there was definitely a time when it was considered very, very normal to dig what you don't want in any garden and dump it in the bush. And that has caused massive problems. Um, and we've learnt not to do that. We now know, don't do that, it's wrong. But there's a huge amount that is spread that's there anyway. What I think we need to be looking at and the questions we need to be asking, whether, um, and we've just discussed this in a garden situation, but I think it equally applies in a, a wild situation, is why are they growing there? Because the propagule, the seed, whatever has been released, but why has it chosen that place to grow? In our gardens, it's usually because we have poor gardening conditions and if we change those, we can grow what we want instead. And in the wild, so often when we see weeds, it's an indication of the damage that people have already done to that land. And I think that's the story we should be talking about. The fact that we have caused this damage, the weeds have been able to grow there and they're growing there preferentially because we've created a situation that favours these weeds. How do we treat our earth differently to create a situation where these plants that we've chosen to say they're not the ones we want 
are not the ones that are the most easy to grow in that situation. Do you have any thoughts on that, Renee? Yeah, like especially with through work, like a big part of the trust is restoring landscapes. That's part of our remit is purchasing or partnering on land to restore. Um, and a lot of that is revegetating. So it's actively trying to cause that transition back to the plants you want, which is usually what we call remnant, which is what would have been here before clearing or, or destruction or anything. Um, and I think that's the best restoration works I've ever seen are the ones that acknowledge that. It's like you don't just go, you're never going to have a situation where you can um, glyph a whole field, plant trees, and then the weeds aren't going to come back. Like we're in a situation now that the propagule load is so huge. So it is, it's about slowly and acknowledging that it's slow, bringing the conditions back to a point where those weeds don't have the conditions they like. Like so... We have a project um, up in the Dane Tree where like, rainforest restoration is really hard because the conditions are so good for so many weeds. Um, and particularly the landscapes we often work on restoring are ex-cane pasture. So um, the plants that were in introduced are also really good at toughing it through terrible environmental conditions. Like they could live and on an anything. ex-cane pasture is not the same land as it was when, when it, was it was rainforest. rainforest. Yeah. Yes. So, and lots of those plants, I guess, once you know them well, once you understand them, you know that often they need lots of sun and rainforest doesn't have sun. So like the people that I really like learning from up there are like, well, you plant in stages, you get rid of the sun first and then that does the work for you. So you plant your early stage, successional rainforest plants, those guys are great at sun, getting high, taking up light, but they won't last long. So you get, let, get them in first and that really clears off your weeds instead of relying on chemical use or a lot of physical labor and in rainforest you can't use fire so um, yeah again it's it's understanding what condition does that plant that you don't necessarily want need what does it thrive under and then how can you change the balance so that the guys you like come back and I think uh, I, leading on from there because I uh, that story it just makes my heart sing to think that you know it's happening people are starting to look at weeds that way and, you know, and this is a big part of what I want to educate in all the work I do about weeds is... But a, a conversation that we actually had um, just in between these sessions that I would really like to highlight and throw into this because I think it's really valuable. Um, and it works on the, the garden situation and the wild situation and in so many ways. We were talking from an Aboriginal point of view of how their connection to land and how they can read the plants, they read the land, and how we don't have that. And I was saying, we can have that. We can create that if we learn our plants. Starting not just with understanding our native ecosystems, which obviously is what you're saying, if we don't understand the native ecosystems, we can't restore them. But if we learn to understand the plants that are around us in our very humanised environment, we're making those connections to land because we are reading the weeds. We are reading the plants around us. Whether we call them weeds or plants doesn't matter, but we're reading what's growing around us to better understand the land around us, the conditions around us. And we can say, and this is partly what Caitlin and I have tried to achieve with this garden, is when we look at that garden bed at the end versus this one here, they're completely different because they're completely different conditions. And we love the idea that people can learn to read those conditions a little bit 
and use that constructively to, to make a greater soul connection with the land, which is what Indigenous people around the world have and modern society has lost, but we can easily regain um, if we choose to. But also use that to our advantage to say, you know, if I want to restore habitat or if I want to create garden, what are the conditions? If I know these plants, I can read this and say, these are the conditions here and how do I mirror that to what I want to grow or how do I alter that to create the right conditions for what I want to grow? Yeah, and I think reading too, to me, like with plants, um, one of the things I've really loved learning from like First Nations people that I work with um, is also that reading is not just a one-time thing. Like you have that element of relational knowledge so you know that when this plant is flowering, this thing will grow. Or when this condition happens, these are the likely things. It's not necessarily those like, like in January, this happens. In February, this happens. It's more, oh, I can see that growing. So now this is potentially more likely to happen. And like, I hope we, we use that knowledge more um, because in gardening, I'm trying to teach that to gardeners because traditionally um, we used to go and look on the calendar and say this month, these are the jobs to do this month. Um, and gardeners have been taught to do that. Um, but as we move around, things are different. If And climate change is changing all of that. If we rely on a calendar to tell us when to prune something, we're likely to get it wrong if we understand what the plants are doing because the plants are responding to the actual climate, not what's predicted or what it was last year or what it's supposed to be, but they're doing what they're supposed to for those exact conditions that we have. So we will understand our climate a lot better and the constant changes if we can learn to read our plants. And I think gardeners are well primed in that sense to be at the forefront of the earth recovering from climate change or responding to climate change because every day in the garden you see plants doing things. So you see the reality of climate. And gardeners are all talking about things flowering a little bit sooner this year than they have done ever before and things like that. We notice things like that. So we don't need the scientists to tell us the climate's changing because we know we can look in the garden and go, why is this flowering a month earlier? And there have been numerous things throughout Brisbane that have done that over the last few years. We have, particularly in the last few years, seen a massive shift in times that certain things flower and that sort of thing. So we are seeing it and um, you know all of these discussions and um, higher levels are irrelevant because on the ground we can see the plants in front of us doing what the climate tells them to do, not what the scientists or the government tells them to do. And actually, I'm interested in that in terms of um, there is this like whole citizen science movement as well um, going on. But I'm also interested in um, collaboration so I think maybe I don't correct me if I'm wrong but maybe when you were working uh, in was it CSIRO but in the environmental field um, I wonder if there at that time was a lot of collaboration between um, traditional uh, owners so I know Renee you work quite a bit through your organization with traditional owners and I'm just thinking how what, what do you think of the future of that um, science um, 
traditional knowledge and education kind of coming together in this with this topic. I guess that's like, to me, if you're going to learn the narratives of the plants that are from here, that's the source, right? You start listening and you'll learn those narratives. Whereas, like, I'm a first-generation coloniser, so I learned the narratives of plants from Europe, like, which you only really cultivate in a garden or they're weeds, essentially. Um, so one of my favourite things is, yeah, learning the narratives of the plants that are from here um, and learning that all those plants have stories too. Like, I as a kid loved Greek mythology like and I loved knowing that Narcissus the person was also the genus name for a plant because they're connected through mythology like of somewhat ancestors of mine so when I started realizing that those stories also exist here that when you see a plant it's a reminder of a story which is then a reminder of a kinship system or a moral or um, a way that you manage a resource like to me that's the stuff that I'm just I get so angry that those stories were not listened to instead people just kept bringing I understand the sentimentality of bringing the plants that you know and that have your stories embedded in them but the stories of the plants that are here are so phenomenal like and that's it to me like the education and the learning whether it's personal or kind of cultural to me is like that's my favorite part is like learning those narratives and opening up spaces that are safe for us to talk about those narratives like I would suggest though I would even go so far to suggest that we have as a general population lost the narrative of the European plants that came with us and we've got a lot to gain by reconnecting full stop with plants and you know, rather than just going a plant's a plant but actually learning a little bit more about them it gives us the opportunity to connect back with the natural world around us and hopefully in doing so, we, we're getting a, a greater connection to Earth. And if we want to be good Earth custodians, we have to have connections. So we can't sit that we think we can sit in an air-conditioned office and, and drive air-conditioned cars and then go home to an air-conditioned house and think that we're going to save the world. It, it can't happen like that. We have to have connections. And we all need to step outside and reconnect with what is growing around us and we need to value what is native, we need to value what is able to grow, we need to value the whole lot and start learning about the story, the connection between people and plants is huge and I think that we're in a lucky position in that we now know we need to value what's native. So in some ways we have an advantage of having that lost generation in between where we, we have lost so much of our knowledge because we can now learn about plants without a bias towards native or European or anything else. We can just accept these plants without bias and say they all have a story to tell. They all are part of our heritage now and they're all of value. And we can incorporate the native in with everything else in our gardens and our lives so much more openly these days. And I think we collaborate better these days than we ever have because at least we finally realised we needed to. So let's like go back to this story or this idea of classification that like just continues to permeate. Um, like like one story recently shared to me, a friend that's just moved to Alice Springs was telling me about the buffalo grass, and she was just saying it has had a devastating impact. Um, on the native plants, and often these are plants that m maybe. Um, 
are not that visible or not present all year round. Um, but it has this impact. <coughs> and also a lot of the impacts can be not as visible, like uh, in terms of impacts on the soil and the microbes. Um, but then as I looked into the buffalo grass, I saw that in Queensland, so in Northern Territory, it's a classified weed. And in Queensland, it's um, all I, the first thing I found was an agricultural page that promoted it as one of the prime fodder plants. Uh, and I was just like, wow, like that, that border is like pretty <laughs> very close. Like, <laughs> and um, so this idea of uh, like we are, but we could talk about islands, I suppose. Like it is a big island, but there are these small, like we need to look at a local level, but then there's these national and state narratives going on as well. So I'm just curious of your thoughts about classification and what, how to deal with that. <laughs> <laughs> there is no easy answer. And, you know, of course, buffalo grass doesn't recognise the state border and stop there. Yeah. It's, it doesn't work that way. Um, and it comes down to um, our classification system at the moment. Um, and we have, a, a, when, if anyone's wondering, we have a system where we have nationally recognised and um, more locally recognised and different weed classifications and under those different classifications are regulations around the weed as to whether or not you are required by law to eradicate it from your property, um, if you're allowed to sell it, if you're allowed to distribute it. And there's, so there is a whole set of guidelines around that uh, which is what you're talking about with your classification. Um, and it's driven by very different things. And this is where I actually do try and point this out in the book. And this is, again, where I want to challenge people's thinkings as to whose um, issue around that plant is the driving force here. Because the vast majority of weed work in Australia is driven by agriculture. And the vast amount of spend on weeds is driven by agriculture. And the whole story around glyphosate and whether or not we ban it is driven by agriculture. And an agricultural system is very, very different to a garden and it's very different to a wild ecosystem. And in agriculture, we're looking at huge monocultures usually where it's about um, a farmer maximising his um, profits in a very short term and I can say a lot of very negative things about farming and they've done incredible damage. There are a lot of farmers working on regenerative agriculture and there's some wonderful developments happening in this field but there's still a lot of our agricultural systems that are insanely damaging to this earth um, which I really hope changes like you know even some of what they're doing is so much worse than you know the pollution that we live in a city life um, but so some of this classification comes from who's making money or who's spending money on a plant if they're making money because it's feeding their stock it's going to be a preserved plant if it's costing them money to get rid of because it's harmful to their stock it's going to be a plant and so the mindset and who's spending money on something is a big part of how something is classified. It would be wonderful to think we were classifying things according to how they impacted local biodiversity. But if we were to do that, 
wheat would have to be a declared weed, wouldn't it? Because wheat has done nothing for the biodiversity of this country. It's fed us, but it's... So the reason for a plant being or not being is a huge part of how we then look at, um, you know, and, and growing wheat, huge expanses of this country given over to wheat. Um, look at the cotton farming out in the centre of Australia where it should never be. If we understand our plants, we understand cotton is a thirsty plant. A cotton is so thirsty they gave up growing it in Brisbane because it wasn't wet enough and they took it out west. How, how are we using this mindset? That's a classic example of not reading the environment, not reading the plants. And whose interest is at stake? Um, and everybody's interests are different, which is why I say even in a group like this, in a little scan setting, we will all have a different opinion of what's a weed. But on a national setting, in a large scale, it's usually about um, finances and who's spending the most money and who's making the most money. Yeah, and I think the buffalo, I guess because like the link to islands too, like I've just come back from one of our reserves, which is an island off the coast of Mackay and Rockhampton on Kamabara country. And um, it's, I mean, this is also a place that pre-colonialism, this island is kind of like a snapshot of what some of the best beef growing country in Australia used to look like. Um, and also some of the origins of some really destructive grass introductions, buffalo included, um, but also Indian cooch. Um, and Gamba, I think, also was introduced somewhere around there. So um, to me, I mean, I wish I could show you photos. Like, the island um, can show you how productive the grass systems in Australia were. And you can read plenty of books by, um, I mean, Bruce Pascoe, great one, everyone knows, like, um, about how when First Nations people understood their grasses and worked with them properly and gave them the things they wanted, you had grain store, you had super productive systems and like on the island we did a burn in november um, i've just gone back and so in november the, it was burnt to the ground it was a cool grass burn but the grass was very dry and i just spent two days slashing and mowing an airstrip because that had grown back to like hip height in a few months so that's a full native pasture that's the kind of stuff that cattle grazers from rockhampton would like give their firstborn for but these are the people that are planting buffalo because a, the legacy of, you know, colonial ancestors not understanding how those grasses work, um, when to rest them, when to burn them, when to let them seed, has now left people with pasture and country that's not able to sustain the grasses that have narratives here, which then means you keep bringing new grasses in that then <laughs> go rogue and buffle, great example. Um, and until you can start and regenerative agriculture, like you mentioned, is such a good place to start and First Nations dialogues in um, restoration as well, like to go, hey, we actually have these awesome grasses like that we hear before. We don't need to keep bringing in other grasses. We need to change the way that we manage country and look after country so that those grasses can persist. And if production is part of our lives, which in Australia, I mean, I doubt that you could flick a switch and say beef production is not going to be a part of Queensland's story. Um, but it, it meet, at least means when you start thinking about changing the economics, but people paying more for meat, people supporting farmers to stock less so their native pastures can survive. Like you start getting into this place where it's not a farmers versus conservationists, it's a, all of us working together to create human systems that let things persist next to each other and build those environments that don't 
foster just weeds or even the weeds are dying now like buffalo has gotten to the point that in its introduction sites it's become such a monoculture that its health has gotten so low that there's a thing called buffalo dieback so lots of farmers that whose incomes and livelihoods are focused on the lie that was sold about buffalo are now going broke because buffalo dieback is causing indian cooch to move in and indian cooch is essentially a footy field grass so it doesn't support production so you just end up with this mess like where you just kept if you just kept your native pastures the diversity that was and it's all about protecting and understanding the basis of it all which is our earth you know we have built these systems over the top of the soil and forgotten that everything relies on the soil and if we don't read and understand what's going on all we're doing is destroying it um and it breaks my heart that we don't value the soil more than we do and there's so much research out there now looking at how much carbon is released from bare soil that really our single biggest source of climate change is bare soil and we still have enormous enormous places out west that where they're just digging it over and watching it blow away in the wind um you know we're doing terrible things we need to learn to value our soil and the only way we can do that is through plants and reading the plants and looking at them and monoculture of any description is a problem and weeds will come in and exploit these damaged conditions and what we see um the whole concept of a cinderella ecosystem that i mentioned earlier is weeds are your colonizers they come in first and we look at this place and we say it's degraded it's terrible it has no value because we don't see the value of these colonizers we don't see that this is not an end point this is a transition that this is an ecosystem that is healing it's you know we have weeds that are feeding the bees the butterflies the birds all of that is so important and with that comes in seed of native plants and over time this ecosystem changes because the roots are working on the soil and improving this soil and we're gradually getting diversity um but of course we're human and we want everything now so we tend not to like that it's very hard to tell a farmer when he's got a paddock that's full of um billy goat weed for example well one the billy goat weed is there because the paddock is overgrazed so if you are out traveling and you see those paddocks that are um, really purple and quite pretty it's overgrazed so that immediately tells you that paddock needs recovery time you've got to do something about that and if you're going to go and your answer is in a bottle of weed killer all you're con- doing is contributing to the problem and the more we damage the soil the more we create conditions where the plants we don't want grow whereas if we can look after the soil we can create conditions for the plants that we do want to grow and with your work with um property owners how receptive do you find um these owners in in the approaches that you propose like are they pretty willing I mean, I guess it depends. Like we work with everyone from um, a sea changer on the sunny coast who wants to nature refuge their property through to um, like some of my favorite projects at the moment are all out in the, um, in Gundawindi, so the Southern Brigalow Belt kind of downs country. 
Um, so again, it all depends on the human experience. Like if someone's livelihood and narrative and history is connected to productive systems, like that's usually quite important to them. But it's it's not an easy assumption, or you shouldn't be making the assumption that every single one of those people values that over their native diversity. Like the property I was at like two weeks ago, a week ago, um, I'm working with five property holders out at Gundawindi. Um, like the Brig Southern Brigalow Belt is some of the most, um, kind of most people say irreparably destroyed um, s ecosystems in Australia, even though it used to be huge um, and diverse and supported a lot of different things. Um, and these guys have had you know, a legacy of I think three generations of management um, on the properties, but they've always been they really embrace and love the native plants on their properties. So they haven't re-cleared since, or if they have, they've been very moderate. Um, and the surveys I was doing on their places were to help them demonstrate that even in their productive system, they have three nationally threatened grasses that are still persisting because of the way that they manage. Like, so they're kind of the opposite to the billy goat weed people who are literally across the fence. Like, and that is such a source of pride for them because, and hopefully like in the shifting kind of, you know, unfortunately economics rules lots of our lives, um, markets around environmental values, that's also becoming valued by the corporate world. So there's a way there that these guys can actually go, hey, like we're really proud of this, but also this person wants to pay five bucks extra for their beef because they know that that beef is persisting in a landscape that doesn't lose or even promotes the, the resistance and resilience of threatened species. Um, so it's always that you know, thing where you can't paint everyone with the same brush and it's so diverse. Like I know like I've also worked with landholders that I get quite annoyed at. So you, know, you could just can't, and we've got neighbours like, of, of our properties that um, you can't. But yeah, again, things change. Like we work with some people in central Queensland, like the parents' generation, not so sustainably minded. The kids' generation have taken over and adapted sustainable management practices. Um, are also have commissioned us to come looking for threatened species on their properties. They have lots. They're really interested in them now. Their kids survey for them. Um, and because their country looks so much healthier now, their neighbours are like, hey, you get more rain than us. And they're like, no, buddy, we live in the same place. It's just a management style. So now the neighbours, like I was talking to them the other day, the neighbours have started thinking about changing management as well because they can see the, the result. So, I love that um, idea of the ripple effect and just seeing or showing by example. Um, and I'm conscious of the time and I would love to, you know, talking about diversity, I think it would be great to uh, involve you in this conversation. If you have any questions, um, I welcome. I can bring the mic around or you can just ask. Um, I'm sure there are some questions, and if not, we can just keep <laughs> keep going. <laughs> I'm wondering, um, with the people, say, out in Western Queensland, Central Queensland, who take up this interest and um, want to do something about it, how do they go within their sort of farming community? Um, <laughs> and how, how does, uh, you know, the possibility I guess for me it's like ripple effect exactly like so um, 
yeah, again, I'll, I'll keep saying the word narrative because it's my favourite word. Like, it's about, um, like, when you build that pride, like, on those properties, say, the grasses I'm talking about only live in a really small area, about, like, 50-kilometre radius, maybe. The same property owners have a butterfly that only lives in a 20-kilometre radius. So, like, through their pride in that, they tell their neighbours, the kids go to school and tell the other kids, like, then the local herbarium finds out and then we do workshops. So it's, like, this real ripple thing that you just... You can't predict, and it's not my job to tell that community what to do with that information. Like, and it's so fun to watch them take it and go, "Oh my God, we're so proud! We've got this thing!" Like, so yeah, I guess it's that you just have to wait and see, and you can just um, bring the information and and share, like, and just see what. I think I've that's the critical thing: is the sharing of the information. Is we need to be having these conversations because this is a big part of sharing that information is if we all have these conversations, if we include it in what we write and what we educate, so that those of us who have the opportunity hold a microphone and speak to others can share these stories and, um, and it, it triggers people to start thinking and then they go hunting and looking for the case studies and, um, and happily more and more of these as they happen are you finding case studies getting put up on the internet and you know people are writing about it so we can have a conversation like this now and hopefully everybody will go home and google something that they haven't looked up before and um, you know find some of these things and share a link with somebody else and and that's how we really get the word out is we 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 shout about it and we talk about it and we encourage you to do the same thing Massively, yes. massively, um, and I say that because I um, I have seen an enormous shift in public awareness um, over recent years. And obviously, um, Bruce Pascoe's book Dark Emu has done a huge amount about public awareness. But it's not just one book. There's a huge movement towards awareness that our education system did the wrong thing by us many years ago by not teaching us but um, in the school system now um, I have um, an 11 year old son and I've got a 24 year old daughter and just seeing the difference in the school system that they're both going through she's finished obviously and he's still there yes there is definitely changes in terms of talking about plants talking about sustainability all of these things now are part of the curriculum where they never were before, where they were, and you know, an alternative idea. Only one generation ago, now it's a staple part of curriculum that the kids need to learn this concept of sustainability. I think it's got a long way to go, but we are absolutely making pathways forward. In um, you know, you're almost hard pressed to find a school now that doesn't have a little garden in it somewhere. There are plenty of them are doing it badly, but they're still trying. So we really are seeing shifts that are changing people's mind to the way they think. And, and more and more, we're, we're seeing, you know, there's a concept now called Nature Play, which is an actual organisation that employs people and they give grants to go around to schools to set up Nature Play to help kids reconnect. And I was absolutely horrified that our school just got a grant for thirty thousand dollars, 
and put in, you know, a concrete channel with a, a tap at one end for the water to run along and a few nice big sandstone blocks at a few logs and thinking, what could you have achieved? You know, the concept is still in its infancy, but there's money being thrown at it and it is being talked about. And, um, you know, in a neighbouring school, they have done quite the opposite and they actually have ropes helping the kids to climb trees. Um, so there, there certainly is a movement towards educating children more and more and more about our environment with giving us a more correct history of um, our country and First Nations people, but also just a general connection to the world around us. Yeah, and I think like just to go full circle back to like learning the fundamentals of reading plants too, like used to also um, run a community garden and do school stuff and it's like growing your own food is when you're young when you're a young person is like one of the ways you start learning to read country and read plants and read soil. It is but I think growing your own food for me um, as a Brisbane gardener has been one that I I balk against um, and I've seen in the gardening world um, I have issues with and I, I love growing my own food I eat out of my garden every day and a big part of what I eat, of course, are weeds. But I do think we should all grow our own food to some extent. But unfortunately, we are so indoctrinated with information from the wrong climate that we don't know what we can grow here. And what we see on TV, and I'm a huge fan of gardening on TV. There's not even anywhere close to enough gardening shows on TV, if you ask me. Um, but a lot of what we're getting is produced in Sydney and Melbourne. And what we're being told to grow, it's, it doesn't necessarily work like that here. And a lot of it is also sponsored by, and again, we come back to this issue with money, by the chemical companies that make the fertilisers. And a big issue in gardening, you will be hard pressed to find any of your garden speakers, garden experts that will tell you anything other than organic gardening. And yet, to get these programs out there, they rely on the sponsorship of the chemical companies. Um, so we still have this disconnect in the industry massively. And because of that, it is really slowing down how we can get that community grassroots kind of information. And, um, you know, I do run workshops in my garden and one I've got coming up is a foraging workshop in my garden where it's all about how to eat the things that are in the garden rather than creating a veggie patch where you've got to add this and add that and you know you watch it on tv and so many people are put off because it looks too hard you've got to put too many different things and you've got to do too much digging it's you know it's a lot of that you're growing things in the wrong climate you're growing them at the wrong time of year it fails and it puts people off gardening if we can have success with what we grow that growing food becomes easy but it's very very hard in a country the size of Australia where our media is southern focused, it would be great if we had a Queensland only garden show, if every state had their own garden show, if every region did, but it doesn't work like that. And um, it's, so we've really got to work on educating ourselves to understand, yes, we should all be growing food, this is grassroots stuff, but we need the right information. So we're growing things that work for us instead of trying to dig over a bed and plant carrots every year. It's just crazy. And, and maybe that there's also um, a need for more education about where our food is coming from. If, like, so 
yes, we can grow our own food, but um, this idea of how certain foods are coming to our plate and, and what was the whole production line involved in that is, is often a question that's not um, thought about. Um, so, and another thing on education that I was thinking about was how education with children, um, I, am, I imagine with all of this information about climate change that it could become quite stressful um, for any of us really, like young or old, um, and that this nature play or connecting with nature is, is also a way to provide um, an, another path of like rather than just falling into uh, extreme depression being like oh okay there is actually something I can do and it's actually quite simple um, and is maybe offers a bit of hope so those kind of programs I think are amazing and should yeah, more money should be put into them. <laughs> yeah, and I think they also help you to see, like, plants, if you think most of the plants here have come through glacial periods, like, these plants have long stories, like, of change. So once you start learning about them, you see how resilient and how persistent things can be. And, I mean, I guess for me too, like, where the human-plant interaction comes from, like, if you do it in one way that, like, I mean, like, First Nations plant management here came through how many glacial eco epochs, like, because the system learnt to function in this relational way to move with climate, whereas we rely on plants that have been selected for a specific climate within the Holocene, and when that was even mildly challenged in the medieval period, Europe turned to an utter dumpster fire so like to me it's also learning about plants helps you like moderate the depression and to me at least it helps me go okay well some parts of human systems are very vulnerable but other parts of human systems are really resilient you just have to kind of help everyone shift into this way of being like that part big big flashing red lights like this part here this function for a long time through really big climatic changes that are maybe not as big as the one we're about to enter but were huge like and did cause civil disarray for very long periods in the places that weren't doing it correctly like is there any other questions from the audience on a global scale for sure um, and I think the, the examples that I see are often collaborative which I think like that's the future it's just like it's the same as ecosystems diversity is key and um, the more minds that you have in on a, a problem um, the probably the more resilient that solution will be yeah, and I always yes, think definitely. of plants, like, plants are such a huge part of art as well. Like, I mean, if you, like, if you talk to Frey after, like, plants are such a huge source of things we use in art, like, from colour through to um, fibre through to inspiration. So, like, it's just, again, like, touching on disconnection, which there's a lot of great art that comes from disconnection from nature, but there's also so much inspiration if you start going, hang on, plants make these sounds, plants give us this, they can make these colours, like... 
I read a really cool paper by someone from Japan that looked into um, with declining biodiversity, they'd lost like this palette of colors that they used to be able to make from natural products just because the, the plants that provided those products are now gone. So they have fabric in collection that they went to try and replicate um, the natural dyeing of and they realized they'd lost the plants that allowed that. So, and same with weaving, like it's just there's, if you start going back and going how plants can help us make art but also inspire art you just open this huge world of like inspiration it's boggling. and I would love people to really embrace that I in the in the book and I w I've got to plug the book you know but um in the book I have actually got a list of the common weeds and what color dyes you can get from them so I have included that sort of information because I love the idea that we can reconnect with that I've put in there um the, the method for making paper out of mother-in-law's tongues. So, you know, there's so much that we can do. And I think the other really important thing about art is art is a narrative of um, our human existence and, and plants are part of our human existence. So, you know, we would kind of hope that the arts keep on telling our story and that our story becomes more and more connected to plants as it's meant to be. And I think also... Um within the arts ecosystem there there are a lot of um philosophies and theories and there's a lot of texts on this subject um and a lot of theorizing about multi-species collaborations and all this stuff um and it's very easy to get kind of like in, stuck in this and like get stuck in your head and i think through this project something that's been really like an important revelation is um, to actually be practical about things. I can actually be going out and the most that I have learnt is by joining my local land care group and meeting Kate and Renee and having these conversations and um, I think there needs to be more of that in the arts and I'm, it's there, it's happening. Yeah.